HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, I'm Kathy Array, the host of Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. This summer, I'm taking a little break and having co-hosts Talia Ralph and Brianna Kurtz host several episodes. I'll see you back in the fall. Hello, hello. You're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Talia Ralph. We're thrilled to be broadcasting live from Roberta's, bringing you all the best in words about food, maybe even some food about words. <laughs> Today, we're chatting with Ava Chin, New York's resident forager extraordinaire and the author of Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal, which is in stores and online now. Vogue recently called it one of spring's best food books, so check it out. Ava has also written for Sever and the New York Times, where she was the city room's official urban forager blogger for five years, so we're thrilled to have her in the studio today to dish on all things foraging and life. Thanks for being with us, Ava. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Great. So I like to start with the beginning. And in your book, um, you start off with three quotes, as a lot of people do. Um, there's one from Thoreau about living each se- living within each season and enjoying it. Um, there's one from the book Stalking the Wild Ex- Asparagus, which mm-hmm. I know is a companion of yours about how foragers always come home with something exciting to eat. Um, but my favorite of the three, and I think the least obvious one, is a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, which is, what is a weed, a plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered. Um, So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that quote means to you and sort of in terms of the book. Sure. So as a forager, when I think about the weeds, um, these are the things that are particularly the edible weeds. Those are the things that to me are gold. Um, When you think about when you put a plant in the category of weed, you basically render it useless. Um, it's as if it does ha- it has no purpose. But in fact, the edible weeds are pretty amazing. Most of them are neglected food sources. Some of them have been traditional foods for since prehistoric times. But we as Americans, I think, tend to like our food 
uh, to come bundled in packages that we can buy in the supermarket. We're not used to or very divorced from the food as it grows all around us from the land, uh, even here in New York City. So there's something about taking uh, an edible plant outside of that category of weed and learning that it's got a common name, in fact, many times multiple common names, Latin names, a culinary, uh, at times medicinal history, as well as the nutrition, in, nutritional information. And to learn about the plants um, in that way, I think, helps to take them out of the broader category of weed. And it actually helps to change your vision and to see the plants for what they are. Yeah, and do you have a, a favorite weed that you sort of discovered in your your foraging? I think my favorite weed of the moment is lamb's quarters. It is uh, tastes a lot, a lot like spinach. In fact, I say that it outspinaches spinach in, pre- in terms of pure greeny flavor. I like to describe it as being like spinach turned up to 11. <laughs> and it's got... Um, very, very wide legs. It's the kind of plant that's highly adaptable. You can see it all across the 50 states. Uh, it grows right here in Brooklyn where it thrives in tree pits. In fact, it's actually just outside of the studio. Uh, I just saw it when I was walking by. And it's really, it's known as being one of the most nutritious plants in the world. Nice. Well, we're going to have to go munch on some when we're done here. Right. But for all of you listening, if you want to check out some lamb's quarters we have some behind the back of roberta's pizza so um can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into foraging it seems like something that would be a little daunting to just start doing right so i was the kind of kid who grew up in the city i didn't have access to a garden and my connection with nature was the wild edible weeds that grow all around us and the very first thing i ever found was something called field garlic it's also known as onion grass or wild garlic the latin name is allium vignali and i knew it was edible because as soon as i pulled it up out of the ground it tasted and sm- oh, it smelled exactly like the scallions and Chinese chives that my grandfather used to cook with. But I was also the kind of kid that would go out uh, fishing right off the coast of Brooklyn and Long Island and New Jersey. Uh, One of the few memories I have of my father was going out clamming with him where we would go out in in, um, waist-high water and dig up clams with our feet. So it wasn't, I think, so unusual for me to... um, you know, to to, to enjoy um, and to go out foraging uh, and to enjoy wild foods. Uh, So, yeah, so I I always, I think I was predisposed to it. And then once I finally discovered it, um, I went foraging in earnest as an adult. It was all on the heels of um, a breakup. There was some way that foraging really provided a whole lot of solace for me, both in terms of that breakup as well as healing up from some old family wounds. Definitely. Well, um, you you started forging, like you said, during this you know tough time in your life, and um, I'm wondering how exactly the process of forging sort of helped you through these challenges because you do you know, write a lot about that in the book and it's for our listeners. Yeah. So I think that there's something about being in nature that can be very healing, and but the fact that it's nature in the city 
uh, to me, that's where the all the interesting stuff is. I, you know, I'm a, a city born and bred, so I wasn't really interested in taking long walks out in the country. I wanted to be able to discover how nature was working its magic here uh, in my at the time in my old Brooklyn neighborhood. And then from there, the journey just kind of led me through different parks and college campuses all throughout the five boroughs. So it's been an amazing adventure. And was there like an aha moment, something where you you sort of realized, wow, this is kind of helping me um, synthesize these things? Or was it more of a slow, you know, as you're learning more and getting more into foraging that you made those connections? I feel like there were so many times that I would be on foraging walks looking for something, feeling stymied because I was either looking in the wrong environment or have you know or at a wrong time in the season but I always discovered something even better than what I was originally looking for so that really taught me a lot of things like um, that it's it's the best way to forage is to walk your own path and to keep your vision open um, so that way you could actually see what's there versus what you want to be there yeah. Definitely. And did you ever get a case of, I remember first reading about foraging, obviously Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma when he goes um, and he talks about sort of forager's vision or this, you know, it sounds sort of almost trippy, you know, seeing things that aren't there or looking too deeply or too long. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that if you've experienced it? Oh, yeah. I think the first time I really, really, really experienced it was when I was hunting for morel mushrooms. And morels are very elusive highly coveted mushrooms, as you and your listeners probably know. Um, And the fact that they're so elusive and they can only be gathered in the wild is reflected in their high prices in the market. So mushroom foragers are really loath to tell you about their secret spots. You have to be really close to someone before they'll reveal anything like that. And so I had a friend who did show me where his secret morel spot was. I can't I can't reveal the location, That's but it fair. was well, it was within the New York City borders. Um, and so at one point, I remember I was walking with him and he spotted one right away. And then he looked down and he spotted another one and another one and another one. And I couldn't see it unless he pointed to them. And so what I did was I just slowed down and I just tried to be in the moment. It was almost like a meditative practice. And then all of a sudden, it was as if I realized I really was standing in the middle of a morale mushroom patch. We were probably surrounded by about 250 morales. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, and again, a great great life metaphor. You know, sort of slowing down, backing up. Um, So you grew up in Queens, right? Mm -hmm. Raised by your mom and your Chinese grandparents. And um, I'm wondering if there was a strong tradition in your family of using plants or herbs, you know, for cooking but also for medicine or if that sort of came later yeah no that that i grew up with that my grandfather believed like a lot of chinese people that your food is your medicine so that meant that the ingredients he cooked with needed to be the best ingredients he was also um, a restaurant worker he worked in chinese restaurants uh throughout the city and on long island his entire life and he was the one who would cook up amazing feasts for the entire family. So I grew up 
eating what I think other people would consider unusual kinds of foods and ingredients. He would cook with medicinal roots and fungi, berries, teas, and I would follow him throughout the Chinese supermarkets, learning about which teas were good for different health issues, things that would help me for when I grew up and became a woman. I'm still actually employing a lot of the lessons that he taught me from childhood. Mm -hmm. Is there a recipe or one that you, you know, find yourself reaching for often or that people ask you for a lot? Not, not really as connected with my grandfather. No. Um, but the recipe that people have been asking about the most really probably is the, the seasonal pie that I write about in the book. It is a, it's based on a Corsican wild grass pie that a friend told me about. And I decided that I was so inspired by this idea of this Corsican grass pie that I was going to try to recreate it in my own Brooklyn neighborhood. So what that meant is that I would go out and search for whatever kind of wild edibles, greens, leafy greens that were available at the time, and I would bring them back. And because I, I had to improvise, because we don't have, unfortunately, the same variety of wild edibles that they do in the Mediterranean, uh, I mixed things in with grass-fed ricotta. And this pie, what's so great about the pie is that you can use it for with a, in a variety of different situations and depending on this it's a very seasonal pie i can make it in the spring the summer and in the fall and the, the recipe appears in the book as well as in the edible brooklyn cookbook great so what did you end up using in it is it sort of just grasses or lettuces and cheese or are there other components to the there's it's all it's mainly wild edibles so mm -hmm. lamb's quarters amaranth Violets. It depends on really what's in season. Dandelion greens, grass-fed ricotta, some Gruyere. Um, and I also do a, a kind of a wild yeast base as well. So sometimes I throw that in. For sure. And so there are recipes um, throughout the book, every chapter. And I'm wondering if you sort of go out looking for something for a particular recipe or if the recipes come to you sort of depending on what comes in because foraging as you point out is sort of a you know go go with the flow enterprise sometimes so right. how does the recipe development work for you right so it's true every um chapter uh Profile. I profile a different edible plant or mushroom and that the it, it comes complete with culinary information the cultural uh, background of the plant and how it's used in various cultures around the world, as well as I end with a recipe um, at the end of every chapter. And basically the recipes really kind of came up out of, it's really based upon whatever it is that I found. So I try not to search for one specific thing only. At, at this point in my life, I'm a seasoned enough forager to know what's going to be out, uh, generally speaking, from month to month. But, you know, the seasons change. Like, we had a really protracted winter. So a lot of the wild edibles that I expected to see in April and May really were coming out much later. Right. Yeah. So just one more question before we take a quick break. I know that in New York, I mean, technically foraging is not legal, right? You can be fined for, what is it, 
uh, mutilating, killing, or removing vegetation from public spaces. So, you know, have you or any foragers you know ever been caught? And sort of, how do you? What's your stance on um, this law? Sure. So that's what, what you're talking about is specific to the New York City um, parks. Right. So it's it's within the parks regulation where they um, they say, you know, no mutilating or tampering or taking plants. But that's in the same list of rules and regulations that also say no spitting on a statue, no walking across newly sodded grass, no using a metal detector. I think when it comes to foraging, I would, you know, it is absolutely the fact that there are foragers out there. People are foraging in the parks all the time. So it would be great to see the Parks Department have less of a museumification kind of stance to the park and, and maybe a little bit more of an understanding of this is another way of using the parks. Do you see yourself getting involved politically at all in that or you're, um, you're staying out? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm happy to say what I just said to anybody, you know, and, and I, I definitely advocate for, for, for us to be able as New Yorkers to have the kinds of foraging rights that you have, even actually within the national park system, you're able to forge for pers- a certain amount for your own personal consumption, right? That would be great to see instead of sort of this blanket stance. For sure. Well, we're just going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute to keep chatting with our guest today, Ava Chin, an urban forager and the author of Eating Wildly. This is Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio. Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. All right, welcome back to Eat Your Words. I'm your host, Talia Ralph, and we've got urban forager Ava Chin in the studio with us today, talking life, love, and digging up stuff to eat in places you would least expect. Thanks for being with us, Ava. Um, So New York City actually seems to me anyway, like it would be one of the least likely places you would find food, you know, get, you know, as we see in your book, it's everywhere, everywhere you look. And so... um, I'm wondering what some of the most vibrant varieties are in our city in particular, and I won't ask you to divulge any specific spots, but sort of some of the areas or neighborhoods where you've found the best luck or 
or bounty. <laughs> sure. So there's plenty of stuff that's growing all throughout the city. And right now, the lambs quarters have come up. I mentioned that they are flourishing outside of the Heritage Radio offices. They're related to spinach, quinoa, and beets, and they are absolutely delicious. I use them in anything uh, that I would use uh, in, to substitute spinach. Um, and then, let's see what else. Uh, amaranth is going to be coming out soon. Amaranth is also a, another traditional food that we as Americans tend to neglect. It's part of the Mediterranean diet. It's also found in the Caribbean diet as well. They call it Kalaloo, right? So it goes by, by different names. And that's a, a wonderful wild edible. I've seen that growing in Williamsburg. I've seen that growing like almost everywhere. Lots of parks and tree pits. Um, I should say that it's not really safe to eat from tree pits, and so I don't, but I'm happy to write about that. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Oh, in the next couple of weeks, the mulberries are going to start fruiting. And so mulberries are some of the most sustainable, abundant wild berries that you can find. And they're, they, they're such prodigious fruiters that homeowners often ask me if there's any way they can stop the tree from fruiting. And there's no way, obviously, of stopping the tree from fruiting. But I always tell them they can invite me and my forager friends over, and we'd be happy to take the fruit off of their hands. Right. <laughs> take care of it for them. Um, that's funny. So, I mean, there's actually um, sort of an interesting conversation within this about the local food movement, which honestly, obviously, is gaining a lot of traction. But it also has its critics, you know, who say that um, people who don't necessarily have the time or the resources um, – to sort of eat locally and foraging seems like, um, you know, it's pretty time intensive. And I'm wondering if you sort of have a response to those criticisms of, you know, can anybody forage or does it sort of lend itself to a certain exclusivity of, of time and access? I think if you can recognize a dandelion, then you've already started on your foraging journey. I think it's that. <laughs> It's as simple as that. To me, that is the uh, the starter foraged vegetable, is the dandelion. And actually, dandelions are really amazing because it's not just the leaves that are edible. The flower can be turned into a honey-like jelly as well as a cordial-like wine. The root is considered medicinal. It can be ground down into a tea um, along with burdock, which is another wild edible that flourishes across the city. Um, I don't think that foraging is the kind of thing that is so exclusive. Most of the foragers that I meet um, actually are first-generation immigrants who are practicing the foraging practices from their hometowns, or their home countries, rather. So to me, it doesn't really seem to be that exclusive. I think maybe if you think about the fact that high-end chefs are getting a lot of media attention for being foragers, that's, that's another thing. But what the media is not really paying attention to is that actually the majority of the foragers out in the field are, you know, you know your first-generation immigrants or people who learned to do it from their grandparents. Right. So do you think that that focus is sort of skewed in a way or... Yeah, I think it can be, but that you know, with the media, that's it's all about um, 
you know, oh, what makes an interesting angle on a story? And if somebody is famous and they're doing it and the food is really good and tasty, sure, why not? Have you seen any sort of surge in interest, do you think, related to this coverage or just in general? Well, absolutely. I think there are more and more people who are interested in foraging, which also means that there are more and more people across the country who are running foraging tours. Um, and and especially here in New York City. I think it used to be only Steve Brill who was running foraging tours for the longest time. There were other people, of course, but he was like the big name that folks knew of because he'd been running tours since the 80s. But there were many more people who are running foraging tours, and some of them are focusing on medicinals, you know, that kind of thing. So what's sort of the line between, you know, foraging responsibly and sort of overstepping? Because I'm sure the more people you get, you know, the more crowded some of your trails are, and I'm wondering if... If, you know, this is a conversation ongoing amongst foragers is sort of how do we do this without, you know, taking everything or losing some of these varieties? Because obviously the variety is such a, you know, benefit and great part of, of the practice. So I think sustainable, sustainable foraging is absolutely key. You don't want to take more than a certain amount of any plant that you're foraging for. Generally, rule of thumb is like 20% of the plant is good. You want to take the parts that are renewable. You don't want to kill the plant, right? So an example of sort of questionable sustainability issues are surround ramps, right? Ramps are a native plant. They're in the onion family. You find them on high-end restaurants. They cannot be cultivated. They can mostly be gathered only in the wild, right? So with ramps, the best way to forage for them sustainably is to take the leaves, right? Leave the bulb in the ground. But a lot of us like ramp bulbs and we like eating them. So then the next step is to leave the roots in the ground, right? So that's a a measure, that's a way that you can forage sustainably. Most foragers that I know who are doing it for their own personal use, right, um, not they're not commercial foragers. Most of of most foragers that I know are actually stewards of the land. We care about the land because that's where our food is coming from, and you want it to come back year after year after year. So that's why sustainability and foraging is really important. Definitely, yeah, that's a great great point. And I I would assume that people who forage have sort of a greater respect for the natural world than maybe most of us that are more disconnected from that that process. Um, so I, I know that you teach both writing and, but also foraging and you just did a, a workshop with food tank. We had Ellen Gustafson on last week. And ah. so I'm wondering, um, what some of the most common questions you get when you're doing those sort of workshops and maybe misconceptions, things that people think about foraging or ask you about that. You're just like, that is so off base. <laughs> I think people think of when they hear that I'm a forager, they think either that I'm a dumpster diving freegan who eats roadkill, or they think that the reason why I'm doing it is because I'm so broke and hard up on my luck that I can I have to forge in order to eat. So that's like a very common misconception. For me, really foraging is all about the discovery of the great abundance of wild edibles that are growing all around us. You know, particularly in this point where our biodiversity in our agriculture um, has shrunk to such a great extent. Um, I think that foraging is actually a kind of nice uh, antidote to that. Definitely. And is there an overlap between foragers and gardeners? Or are you guys sort of different camps? Do you garden or... Um sort of what's the relationship between people who are growing food in an urban environment and people that are foraging? 
think the whole foraging gardening issue is is a a very interesting one most gardeners that i know they're intent upon what plants they want to plant there and they think about the weeds and the even the edible ones they blanket it under with the same category as the weeds that are not edible so one of the things i like to do is to i've gone out to community gardens and i've taught the gardeners there what are the edible weeds that are growing around them that they could potentially cultivate um, or eat after they've pulled it out? You know? Definitely. Um, we're almost out of time, but one last question sort of relating to teaching, but you also teach writing at the College of Staten Island, SUNY. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any advice for students looking to get into food writing, or I know you also do you know, personal essay writing, but um, you know, what's, what's a piece of advice for someone looking to write about food? intelligently that's a great question i think the number one piece of advice that i give to young writers is that they have to find something that they're really interested in like a kind of niche that only they can talk about right that nobody else is talking about right now but they have access to either other people that they can gather quotes from or um, a community that they can write about but it has to be something that they're really interested in because the life of a writer can be so difficult and the rewards really are the writing is the writing itself Um, and the other rewards of publishing um, recognition that comes so much later that you really have to have a passion for the subject matter and if you know if you can figure out what that is that will help you in the long run when you have to potentially write for free for a while until you get paid right so so um the you have to you have to know what it is that you're really interested in i think that that is key because you're going to be doing it for a while you know without necessary monetary compensation (laughs) right yeah and uh i mean you're lucky that you've been able to find that niche and and share it with us so um for those of you who want to hear more read more from ava you can check out eating wildly foraging for life love and the perfect meal it's in stores now and available online Um, thank you so much for being with us today ava this has been another great episode of eat your words on heritage radio i'm your host talia ralph and we'll see you all next week thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.